Welcome to Fine Laws Don't Judge Me, the show about the law in real life. I'm Laura Temme, and I'm joined by Joe Fawbush. Hi, everybody. Hi, Joe. Andy has ditched us for the week, so uh, I guess it's just us nerds holding it down. We don't need him anyway. <laughs> I was just thinking, I don't know what that means that Andy is the cool one of the three of us. Um, <laughs> I don't really know how I feel about that. Um, We're very excited for this episode. We have a guest with us. Francesca Witzberg is an award-winning attorney and legal strategist helping businesses stay protected and profitable. Uh, She has worked with some of the top global brands, including Prada and Tory Burch, as well as at the largest law firm in the world. She's currently a partner at nationally ranked IP law firm Loza & Loza and has been recognized as New York Super Lawyers Rising Stars and as Best Lawyers Ones to Watch. Uh, Francesca's practice centers on all aspects of trademark, copyright, and brand protection, as well as commercial transactions. She's helping entrepreneurs all over the world in entertainment, fashion, beauty, luxury, technology, and consumer product industries, helping them protect, enforce, and monetize their intellectual property assets. Thanks for joining us, Francesca. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm really (laughs) excited to be here today. Great. So can you tell us a little bit about your background just to start things off? Sure. So I grew up in the Manhattan suburbs in New Jersey, and I had no I had no lawyers in my family. It was my grandfather who came over from Italy and started a construction company. My mom worked with him and my father was in pharmaceuticals. But it's kind of cliche for all the lawyers out there. At some point in our lives, it's likely that someone told us when we were young, oh, you'd be a good lawyer. lawyer." Yes, that is, yeah. It's totally cliche, but like it definitely gets planted in a seed somewhere young. So that's where it started. And then when, when I went to Villanova for undergrad, I worked at a nonprofit service center for immigrant workers. So I thought rather than go the lawyer route, maybe I'd do the nonprofit. But I ended up applying to law school and I went to school knowing no idea what type of law I wanted to do. That's interesting. So so how did you end up getting into IP practice? Yeah. So I went to Cardozo, which is the Benjamin Cardozo School of Law in Manhattan. Apparently it was a really good intellectual property school. I had no idea what that was, but I'll never forget, I was at a speed networking event and I met the general counsel of a fashion brand. Then next, I was speaking to a prominent entertainment lawyer out in LA who splits his time between New York and Los Angeles. I met nonprofit workers who were working with artists. And that to me, I didn't know that that world was really there. And I figured intellectual property was the perfect intersection for my love of of art and music and fashion, but also uh, protecting and helping businesses from the legal side. So once I learned about it, I was immediately hooked. I started taking IP classes. I got internships at Tory Burch and Prada through the year. And then I ended up working at a very prominent intellectual property law firm right out of law school. Very cool. So one thing that we wanted to talk about as more people are opening their own businesses, especially during the, the pandemic, I think a lot of people tried to get creative as far as new income streams and many people are thinking of forming a new company. So what would you say to, as far as why this kind of work is so crucial to the success of a small business? I think that 20 plus years ago, trademarks were really for 
the Coca-Colas, the, the bigger brands, you would see mm -hmm. their R symbol and you're like, wow, they really went through the effort to register their trademarks. With the world being what it is now, everything being digital and online, if you're a local business and you have an online presence, that raises intellectual property issues. If mm -hmm. you are a lawyer and you're online, that raises intellectual property issues. Not only does it raise issues, but now you are searchable, you are visible. It's much easier for businesses to find people who are using their mark intentionally or unintentionally. So what I've realized very early on in my career is it doesn't matter if you are a Fortune 500 company or if you are a small local business, if you have a present online and you're putting content out there, you are using trademarks, you are using copyrights. These are all your intellectual property assets. So whether or not you are protecting them or whether or not you know if they're even protectable, maybe there's someone else's name that's out there, uh, these raise serious legal issues. And I get, unfortunately, I get small businesses that come to me and say, I had no idea. And unfortunately, the law really pushes businesses to understand what intellectual property is. And it's not enough just to say, oh, I didn't know. Maybe mm -hmm. it's enough to get out of a demand letter, but if someone really wanted to be aggressive and sue you, saying I didn't know is not an excuse. So that's why I do so much content. I want every single business owner, no matter what size, to understand what intellectual property is because being online, it's so important. And figuring out, one, how do I protect my names, but also am I stepping on other people's toes to avoid crazy expensive litigation. Yeah, that's a really great point. Yeah, and maybe you've answered this with your last question, but you know, intellectual property can be an intimidating subject for people who aren't that familiar with the law. I mean, honestly, it can be an intimidating subject for lawyers <laughs> who don't practice. So what's some of the things that people who do own their own small business and maybe don't have any idea of what they're getting into you know, what are some of the things to watch out for? What are some typical mistakes that people make when they're first starting out? Yeah, so we could, I could say the do's and then the don'ts, the pitfalls. So the three do's, I try to summarize it super easy to understand. There's, there's three points, your trademarks, your copyrights, and your contracts. If you invest in those three things early, which we're not talking five figures. We're talking maybe a few thousand dollars that if you budget accordingly to get trademarks done the right way, copyrights and contracts, that's that's an insurance policy. If you actually budget it early, you're investing in yourself, you're investing in your business and you're gonna save so much more time, money and, and heartache down the road. So I would tell businesses, start with your trademark come up with a name, but it's not enough just to do a quick Google search. Work with a trademark lawyer who's actually, like for example, we use a special software that we type in the mark, we type in the goods, and it doesn't pull up the exact mark. We're gonna really look to see if there's more um, similar marks that you wouldn't have found by doing your own search. With copyrights, the difference between those two is that trademarks are your names. They're anything that you're using to indicate that my offerings and my products are by me. So anytime you're using names to differentiate your goods or services from a competitor's. Copyright gets into the creative works like content, photos, programs, methods. Those are all intellectual property assets that you can protect with a simple copyright filing. And that last piece is the contract piece. 
Having contracts is absolutely critical for businesses. Without a piece of paper, you're still entering into an agreement with anyone that you're dealing with, whether they're clients or independent contractors. But what are those terms? They're out there somewhere in the ether. Maybe they're in emails, maybe they're in DMs, and maybe they need to be interpreted or fought over. And you want to avoid that simply by having the right contracts in place. I'm not talking about templates. I'm not talking about using your husband's or your friend's contract that someone else did for them. <laughs> These are custom tailored terms. I get it all the time where yeah. someone shows me, oh yeah, you can work off this template. And I say, this isn't, this has nothing to do with what you're offering. <laughs> so work with a lawyer that's going to build you a custom contract. Those are my, my three main do's. And then really quickly, the don'ts is using a trademark without checking to see if it's available because you can, you're totally going to end up with a demand letter, unfortunately, with everything being so visible, like we said. Um, number two, filing your, your, not filing your copyrights and just taking other people's stuff without permission and everyone thinks oh well it's out there and you're resharing there is a very complex area of the law and we could have a whole podcast about <laughs> using other people's images but i will say yeah. the default rule is get permission before using anyone's photo and then i'm happy to answer any questions about that or you can contact me directly for specifics and then the third is people don't use don't have contracts um, it's, it's very unfortunate and I see it with trusted business partners. So you go into part, you go into business with a friend or someone that, that came in through a referral that you thought was a really good person. And unfortunately, maybe they're not, or maybe just the terms weren't clear at the beginning. And now your expectations were both different and you're having a falling out. If you had a sophisticated lawyer put together the contract at the beginning you know, he or she's really going to work with you and think all the worst case scenario things so that if things do go wrong, you just point to terms in the contract. So that those are my do's and my don'ts. Yeah, that's great. I want to back up a little bit because you brought up something really important, especially when it comes to copyright is there's a lot of misconceptions out there. You know, a lot of people think, oh, if I'm not making money off of it, then it's not a copyright infringement, which is not true. And I think there's also still a lot of confusion about what can be trademarked. And I could probably talk for a long time about non-traditional trademarks because I fell down that hole during law school. So we don't have to get into that. But can you give us some examples of things that are eligible to be trademarked? Yes. Okay. So we'll start with trademark. I always try to tell businesses that there, there's a spectrum, right? From, from a trademark lawyer perspective, the spectrum starts with how strong is a mark versus how weak is a mark, meaning how protectable is it. So the strongest and the best trademarks from a trademark law perspective are the made up words, the Googles, mm -hmm. Xerox, um, Kodak. These are totally made up. And what that means is it, it would be very unlikely that someone just happened to think of it and use the name without looking you up, right? So those mm -hmm. marks get the strongest protection. Um, unfortunately, businesses, you know, that doesn't always work for them. They wanna use words that convey what it is that they're offering. So from a marketing perspective, the best names are the ones that actually tell the consumers what you're, what you're offering, what you're giving. So um, because I am a very business and practical focused lawyer, I will, I'll work with 
my clients to come up with names that are protectable from a trademark perspective, but also maybe they do indicate some, some essence of what it is that they're offering. And so I like to say that sweet spot on that spectrum is what's called suggestive trademarks. These are marks like Jaguar for cars. You're not literally selling Jaguars animals, but <laughs> you know, right? Like yeah. I hope you're not, but <laughs> <laughs> we did a whole different thing about Tiger King. We don't have to, <laughs> but like that word conveys Um, It's an exotic, sleek, fast vehicle. So there's totally ways to be creative within the bounds of finding trademarks that are protectable. So that answered your trademark question. Did you have another question about copyright? Yeah, I think it would help just for any listeners out there who aren't as familiar with, with IP law just to go maybe the basics of what is protected by copyright. Yeah, so and then and then also I can talk about um being careful with using other people's images because mm-hmm. it's 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 the environment that we're in where everything is you just tap a button and you hit share. Um, so I'm finding that a lot of clients are seeing their things just repurposed and copied, and that's not always okay. So mm-hmm. we could talk about that. But a copyright is like I mentioned, it protects the creative works. So it'll protect methods and and slideshows, programs, anything that's like the creative expression of of what what you put together. Um, There's a very low, it's it's a low threshold, but it has to be original. So most of the time we're able to get past that threshold. So um, like contracts are are protected under copyright. Um, There's a lot of things that you wouldn't think, but as long as there's some little modicum of creativity, then it'll it'll meet that threshold. So copyrights, uh, a really fun fact, if you do not register your copyright, you really can't enforce it. So that's why I tell clients to get those on file for, for things that are super important to them. Because if you send a demand letter without a copyright registration, if you have a good lawyer on the other side, the first thing they're gonna say is, well, you don't have a registration. So that demand letter is like waving an empty gun. So Mm -hmm. it's very important that you get your filings on. And then when you're using other people's content, pretty much everyone has the copyright if they've created it and it's original. So you really should ask for permission if you're repurposing it. Uh, It could be be in a DM, it really can be, um, as long as you're asking for permission, but without it, you can end up in legal hot water kind of without even knowing it. Yeah, so let's say that I wanna start selling apparel. Uh, maybe I have an idea for graphic tees or something like that. I, you've brought up a couple of copyright issues that I should watch out for. One is how do I stop people from just taking the idea that I'm posting online and making money off of it themselves? Uh, it sounds like the, the first step is to register the copyright. And the second part is I'm creating something that maybe is like fan art, say I make a graphic tee and I, it's a throwback to an eighties movie. You know, I'm, I'm quoting Steven Spielberg or something like that. What are some of the issues that, that I should be watching out for? How do I stop people from stealing my ideas and how do I avoid copyright infringement myself? Yes. So copyright extends to the expression of the creative idea. It doesn't protect the ideas themselves. That's why you're able to probably see a million stories about star-crossed lovers. You know, that that Mm -hmm. idea 
Romeo and Juliet is not the the concept of star-crossed lovers isn't protected because that's just an idea. But as you get closer and closer to the act, exact details of the story and the exact characters, you are crossing into copyright territory. So there is a concept known under copyright law called fair use that is totally in that myth pile that we were talking, that Laura, you mentioned. <laughs> yeah. That people think, oh, if you only use 20% of it, it's it's okay. Um, if you don't use it in an advertisement, that's okay. They're not totally far off, but those things are only a small factor, which goes into a list of factors that are considered during the fair use analysis. It's a very complex area of the law. Courts are, are constantly reversing each other over over the law. So the best practice truly is to try to get permission. And then you need to understand your risk level. So I tell clients to think about a couple of things. Like if you're gonna do fan art, if you're gonna do something that is, you know, in that gray area, I would think, one, am I making money off of it? Because that is an important factor. If you are just doing organic social media content or doing it for educational purposes, that that's a check in the box for fair use points because it, this is not a black or white analysis, but I would put a check in that category. Then um, you're going to think about how visible is it? I, you know, I've advised very high visible clients that spend millions of dollars in advertising every year. It's going to be really hard for someone not to see their artwork in an advertisement that's all over um, in every print print magazine and on billboards. Mm -hmm. So you're going to think how how visible is it? And then if I needed to take it down, how easy is that? So if you did get a demand letter, would you be okay with removing it? Um, and then Another piece is, does it add some sort of artistic value? That's where kind of fan art comes in. There's this concept called trans transformative use, which is also crazy gray area of the law. But if... if Copyright has a lot of that. It's wild. It's, yeah, that's what I love about copyright law. It's, it's so... It's sort of the Wild West, especially when it comes to IP. <laughs> like. Yeah, so that's why when clients go there, I'm like, okay, you're going there. And here's, I have a call with a client right after this to talk about um, whether or not memes um, can, oh. can infringe copyrights, which is super yeah. interesting. <laughs> but there's factors totally to consider. And to summarize them, it's how visible is it? How commercial is it? Are you really going to, you know, are you, is it hardcore advertising or is it more like organic fun content? Um, is it educational? And does it add some other like artistic value? And those are not even all the statutory lists. I'm just saying from a practical perspective, those are the things I usually quickly talk to clients about. But if you have questions, it's don't just guess, don't go on these message boards. You really need to have a lawyer analyze every situation because you could really end up in a situation where someone's suing you for a lot of money. Yeah, absolutely. So do you find that takedown notices are generally pretty effective? And if, if that doesn't work, what are someone's options? Yeah, I, I do. I do. And that's because the web, the web providers, the people who are hosting usually, um, they could be liable. So under the law, they, they're required to respond and they, there's procedures that they have to take. If they don't take those, if they just let it go and they let the infringing activity 
continue, they could be held secondarily liable. So that's why, you know, Etsy, Amazon, they have huge legal teams just to manage these because it could just take one one mistake to really for those companies to be held liable for a lot of money. So generally, yes, I think they're effective. Do you ever have discussions with your clients about whether those takedown notices are worth the time and effort? Because for some companies, especially bigger brands, they might have a lot of people taking their things and posting them. And they, you know, it's kind of like playing whack-a-mole. So I'm, I'm wondering <laughs> if you could talk a little bit about when you should really stridently enforce uh, your rights and when you should say, okay, this isn't worth the trouble. Yeah. So I've, I've been on the enforcement end from the companies that literally have five or more people doing takedowns all day, you know? So I've been on that end where it does feel like whack-a-mole, but someone has to do it. If you're Mm -hmm. just, because under the law, if you're not enforcing your rights, if you just let them go, you could actually lose your trademark rights. And that's a big deal. So you definitely, the big brands have an enforcement, whether it's internal, like in the company or they hire a firm or another vendor, they're doing that. Um, And it's really the same with small businesses. You don't need a whole team of five people or, you know, a a whole team of people to be doing this, but you do need to be doing it. And so if you are a smaller business, here's some really simple steps. Work with a trademark or an intellectual property lawyer to draft a template demand letter for you. Then every time you see an infringing use, you can update it. You can have your secretary update it. You can have your lawyer update it. Um, to that particular, whatever the infringement is, and just send them out. You have to be enforcing your rights. It really doesn't matter if you're small or big. If you're not doing it, what's going to happen is you could end up in a big situation where people are just using your things and five years down the road, now you decide you have enough money where you want to go after them. It could be too late because you've let all of this infringing use go on for years without doing anything. A court may hold that you've lost your rights. Yeah, that's a really great point. Yeah, thank you for that. So one final question for you here. Uh, if someone listening wants to begin the trademark process, how do they go about doing it? What's the first step? Yeah, so the first step is definitely talking to an intellectual property lawyer. But when clients come to me, I don't just do the standard trademark intake form. To me, what's the difference between you going and filing it yourself or using LegalZoom if you're just going to tell me exactly what to file? As we talked about today, there's so many different aspects of intellectual property that's not just trademark. So I usually tell clients, let's start from the beginning. Let's do what I call an IP audit and an action plan. So I get I get permission to look at all of your business assets, your websites, your programs, methods, whatever it is that you currently have, and put together a list of your IP assets. So you may already have trademarks and copyrights We'll go through and figure out which ones are the most important. And then we do a contract checklist to see what contracts you have or don't have. And then we design a, a, a very 360 intellectual property plan that's custom tailored to you that you don't have to you know, implement immediately. You can do them in phases. You can budget the first one to three months 
filing for your main trademark, your most important copyright and getting one contract. That's kind of how I work because otherwise I've seen it where clients come to you and they think they want a trademark, but really what's happening in essence is that they have this huge, incredible copyright piece that's so core to their business. But if you're not working with a counsel and a lawyer that's really gonna do that extra step and go that extra mile, um, you could end up with major legal gaps. So that's why I, I work with clients to really develop the 360 holistic plan because without it, you're gonna end up in, in legal hot water. So that's the starting point. And then with the trademark aspect, you definitely need your name, you need your list of goods, and there's some other details that you know your IP lawyer would be happy to work with you on. All right. Well, thank you so much, Francesca. I appreciate your time today. Now, my understanding is that you do a few things on Instagram for uh, your clients and the public to kind of educate them about IP and trademark law. Is that right? Yes, definitely. I'm really active. I have a lot of videos that explain what a trademark is, what a copyright is, because really my mission is to educate and help protect entrepreneurs. So, I'm super active on Instagram and my Instagram handle is at the trademark attorney. All right. Easy enough to remember. We can, we can handle that. A, yeah. Yeah. That's a and good I name. Will, I will check out some of those <laughs> videos because this is a interesting part of the law that I am not familiar with. Laura has a little bit more knowledge than me about <laughs> IP law, but uh, I, I was learning a lot today, so I appreciate it. I'm so glad. And can I just add, <laughs> I want to just add one more thing. Sure. I really, like I said, I'm on a mission to help educate entrepreneurs. And if anyone is interested, I'm happy to do a free 15 minute call. I know a lot of the stuff that we talked about today is, is very high level and I'm sure people have more granular questions. So that's why I do those 15 minute consults and you could just click on the link in my bio on Instagram and set up a call directly. That's awesome. We, we love making the law more accessible. That's a lot of what we do on this show. So that's really great to hear. It's wonderful. Thank you guys. Thank you so much for having me. And that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Find Laws, Don't Judge Me. Please subscribe to, rate, and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Check the show notes for related content. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at findlawpodcasts at thompsonreuters.com. 